My name is Rachel Barenbaum. I'm the author of A Bend in the Stars, and I'm here today with one of my all-time favorite authors. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have the one and only Kate Quinn on my show. Her amazing new book, Rose Code, just dropped. Do not miss it. Run out and buy it. Kate, tell us what is the Rose Code about? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. Delighted to be here. Uh, the Rose Code is the story of three very different women who are all called to the mysterious Bletchley Park, a secluded English country manor where the best and brightest brains in Britain are being recruited and trained to crack the supposedly uncrackable Axis military codes. Um, so this really was a book about women and secrets, a theme you write about a lot. Um, in this book in particular, women are the holder of secrets, they're working in secret, right? They're cracking secret codes. Um, and then at the end of all this, they talk about in the book how they're expected to just go back to their lives as homemakers, get married, right? And forget about all of this. How, how could you think about that? You know, how did you think about that as you were writing? How did these women do that? Well, I think it's one of the things that is just as incredible as the, the code-breaking achievements of Bludgeley Park is the secrecy which they with which they kept this incredible information. Um, it's really quite amazing to us in you know a 24-hour news cycle and you know people who update everything that they do on social media minute by minute how people of that generation could have simply been handed the, one of the biggest secrets of the war and then just told, well, just don't talk about it to anyone, and they didn't. So I really was fascinated, first of all, by that idea, you know, exploring what that kind of secrecy does to the psyche when you are, you know, having to live with it day in, day out. And then I've always been, you know, really fascinated by aftermath and by the fact that women tend to get uh, get opportunities in wartime that they don't get in ordinary life, uh, whether it's a job that they're able to move into with, you know, because a man who would ordinarily have that job is at the front, or whether it is a chance to, you know, serve their country in a way that in civilian life they cannot. But the real question is, with aftermath, when the war is over, can they hang on to those opportunities? Are they going to be allowed to continue to stay into the new world in which they've moved? And that really was a conundrum for the ladies of Bletchley Park because they had done these incredible things. And then they did have to literally just go home and not tell anyone what they had done or why they had to keep secret about it. The only thing they could think is, you know, it's at some point maybe the term of secrecy will run out and maybe they'll finally be able to tell the grandkids or the kids, you know, this is why mom is so good at crossword puzzles. You just wrote it so beautifully, though. You really got into their heads. Like, how did you do that? Do you light candles, right? Like, say a seance. I mean, how that that feeling of knowing that your work is so important and you can't talk about it. I can't even imagine it. Well, I really loved my three heroines uh, right from the beginning, Yeah, even as I was you know, sort of making them. And they're all either very closely based on real women or they're fictional composites of real women. And I knew I wanted them to be as different as possible and partially so they could do some very different work at Bletchley Park and you'd get a much more full understanding of how the intelligence moves through the park. So it's not just the story of the women, it's also the story of the place. But then also I really wanted them to be, you know, women from all walks of life, different education levels, different social backgrounds, different family backgrounds, 
because if there was one thing that Bletchley Park was, it was a great equalizer. It, you were called there and you could find yourself working side by side with almost literally anyone. And as long as you could get the work done, you were welcome there and you, your voice would be heard. And so I wanted these wanted to make it clear that these ladies who become really the best of friends and then of course at some point the worst of enemies they would normally have never even in the ordinary walks of life crossed paths much less become friends but the war and the work that they do throws them together and so it's also in addition to be a story of code breaking it's a story of female friendship and the kind of uh pressures that friendship comes under and whether they're going to be able to mend that friendship by the end of the book. You write in all of your books, um, you know, you really write very strongly about women and the friendships that they have, right? Why is that theme so important to you? Well, because, you know, I think it's true in so much of history. I mean, there's a reason we have, you know, the whole idea of herstory, you know, examining what were the women doing in the past, because uh, for so long, it's the history centers around what were the men doing. So that's something that I want to, you know, do my part in, you know, do whatever small bit I can to help shine a spotlight on where women have done something really quite amazing in the past and where they perhaps have not received as much credit as they deserve. So there are many writers who are doing this I'm proud to be one of them just you know we all do our bit to you know shine a little more light I love it thank you keep shining keep shining it on I'll keep reading <laughs> I loved also that you put characters like Beth right next to Harry next to the men working together in a way that they never would have imagined would have happened before the war right so you also had to step into the role of men but men also had secrets Right. Um, you show a scene, for example, where one man, um, it's assumed other people outside of Bletchley Park assume that he's not doing his part in the war. And right, they berate him for that, even though he's doing this crucial role. So um, how did you think about the men's role in their secrecy? Well, the men, in a way, had a little bit of a harder time than the women in Bletchley Park because uh, women were expected to contribute to the war effort, but they weren't expected to be on the front lines. So as long as you were doing your bit, you know, and, you know, the ladies, you know, could feel proud and they would, you know, be able to tell people if not what they did, they could say, oh, well, you know, I do boring office work, but, you know, it's tedious, but it's necessary. And, but the men had something that was, you know, a little bit harder because men, young men were expected to be in uniform. They were expected to be fighting for the most part. And when you had young men at the park who were doing critical war work, they would, you know, be beating their brains out working at this absolutely crucial code breaking all day. And then they would go home and they might find their neighbors or even their own families who they could not read into the secrecy of what they were doing. You'd be rating them for not being a fighter, for not being on the front lines. And for those of them who even thought about, you know, I would like to fight. I, I've done my code breaking bit. Can I can I quit and can I go enlist? The answer would be no, because the whole idea is you have this information now, this critical secret. And if you're you know, if you're caught and become a prisoner of war, that secret is out. So we can't even risk you going to fight. So you don't even have the option of quitting and going to fight. And that was really something that was a cause of great shame to some of them and was really a cause of great strife with families and with neighbors because they would get these guilt trips, this, these accusations of being cowards, and there was no way they could defend themselves because they had to you know, keep their mouths shut about what they were really doing. So well described, so well written. Um, so going back to the men and women and their interactions, um, 
you know, the women, of course, had secrets of their own from their lives before they arrived, before they started working on code breaking. Um, and Mab in particular had a difficult past. And I don't want to bring in any spoilers, but I will say you brought in the amazing character of Francis and then you killed him. How could you do that? Oh my God. I sat up and I was screaming. I was like, no, my kids came running. How could you kill him? Well, you know, I knew the trouble is, is that in this particular setting, there's very little physical danger for my characters um, because they spend most of their war well behind enemy lines, you know, in secrecy. Um, but, you know, they're safe. They do this work and they keep to, and, you know, they're, they keep physically safe, even if the work is, you know, mentally and emotionally grueling. But that meant that I had to try to find ways to bring the war to them. And when you have things like the London Blitz and the various bombings going on across the country, um, I knew I was going to take advantage of that. And plus it enabled me to um, lean into one of the existing, you know, sort of urban myths, urban legends about Bletchley Park, which is that uh, the bombing of a particular town called Coventry had been known about in advance and that they could not and they didn't uh, send the warning because they had to protect the code. Now, I'm not talking about this particular bombing in uh, the Rose Code, but I did use that particular place and I did use the whole idea of what happens when you know something is going to happen but you can't divulge where you found that out. And so you can't give warning to people when you would like to. And that was a really interesting conundrum, I thought that you know is brought up by code breaking because you had people who knew things in advance that were going to happen or that it all just happened. And they weren't necessarily allowed to act on that information. And I wondered what would be the cost of that. So that was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to tore your heart out. It kind of did mine too, but it was something I felt I had to explore. And this was the way, the best way to do it. So does it hurt you when you kill off your characters? Yes, it does. I don't enjoy it. But on the other hand, um, you know, there's no book that without, there's no book that, you know, works unless it has some, you know, strife in it and, you know, some grief for people to get over. And I knew that for these three women who are really the best of friends, there had to be some terrible thing that would be the seed that tears them apart from being friends to becoming enemies. And if that was going to believably work, it had to be something bad. So I knew, uh, you know, nothing would do, but there had to be some catastrophic loss, some catastrophic death that, you know, acts as the catalyst that, you know, drives the wedge between them. I get it, but I'm just telling you, it destroyed <laughs> me, but I get it. Oh, that's good. I loved, I do love hearing we readers when they say they're destroyed. I always say that like, uh, you know, the, the tears of readers is the only thing that keeps authors young. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you um, about the actual research here, because you described the code breaking machines, right, and in a very physical way, right, and there are pins and bobs and knobs, right, they had to be moved around and reset, and it was like heavy, exhausting, your characters are sweating. How did you research that? Did you actually take them apart? Did you buy a machine or go to a museum and use one? Um, I was able to actually pre-pandemic go to Bletchley Park and I was able to see demonstration there with a real Enigma machine, see what they looked like, um, uh, see how they were used. And that was really quite critical. You know, I, I loved walking through the park. It's a beautiful visitor center, a lovely historic, you know, a historic uh, day trip if you are anywhere near the area and, you know, things open up again and it's safe. <laughs> 
I do recommend you go. Um, I read dozens and dozens and dozens of books about code breaking and about Bletchley Park and about Enigma and everything else. And the thing I can really conclude is I would not have been a good code breaker because um, it doesn't matter how many times I was reading, you know, stories where there'd be some, you know, 90 year old ex code breaker who's saying something like, oh, you know, really, it wasn't that hard. You just would have to, you know, set for the settable umkavelts. And then after that, you would, you know, button up the bigrams and look for the and look for the crib sheet. And I'm just be I just be sitting there like, what? I don't understand any of this. I've watched it four times. You know, so it was one of those things where finally, what I really had to do was think about, all right, I don't know how to crack Enigma codes. I wish I did, but I don't. On the other hand, though, if you want to learn how to crack Enigma codes, there are plenty of books out there. There are YouTube videos. There are experts who will on Twitter who will actually walk you through that. My job is not to tell you how to break Enigma. My job is to tell you how it felt to break Enigma. And that was the kind of thing that I really honed in on in my research. And fortunately, you know, once about the 30 year mark passed, we started getting books about Bledgley Park from the people who had worked there, you know, memoirs, biographies, um, autobiographies. And there was a lot of great stuff where people were willing to talk about, all right, what really did it feel like when you had, you know, a battle plan in your hand and you knew you had to get it decrypted because the battle is happening in three days and you're how what does it feel like to you know to grab that cup of coffee like your eighth of the night and know that you're not leaving this room until it's done and that was the part that really gave me the thrills yeah right because if you leave too early you don't crack it a lot of people could die right i mean it's not just like you're tired and that's that kind of pressure was the thing that made this this whole uh, book fly for me because when I was originally thinking about how to do this, one of my thoughts was, how am I going to make this interesting? You know, because I wrote about, you know, lady spies in the Alice Network where, you know, you have women who are risking their lives in an occupied zone, you know, waiting, you know, pouring wine for the enemy, knowing they could be caught and shot at any moment. And I wrote about women pilots in the Huntress where, you know, women were flying all night conveyor belt bombing runs and knowing they could be strafed at any moment and killed. But here I had women who were, you spend their time scribbling with pencils, you know, on paper scraps in green huts. And I was like, how do I make that, you know, charismatic and cinematic and, and you know, and, and interesting. But the thing is, it, it was once you realize that this was a war that was hap a fight that was happening in the mind, and you realize the incredible emotional pressure they were under to the realization that if they didn't get their jobs done, people died. If they didn't crack this code, get the information, people died. And that's the kind of pressure that, you know, sends people into nervous breakdowns and, you know, crack ups and all kinds of, you know, emotional strain. And that was really what I had to lean into and what I enjoyed leaning into in the end, you know, because it's a war that happens in the arena of the mind and it's a different kind of war and one still that is critical. Yeah. So what was the strangest thing that you found while you were doing all of this incredible research? Um, well, it was really a lovely tidbit that ended up being uh, getting in its way into the book. And that's because, you know, one of my code breakers, she's very closely based on Osla Benning, who was a Canadian debutante who worked at Bletchley Park as a translator because she had lovely finishing school German, as many uh, debutante types did. And she was the wartime girlfriend of Prince Philip, who was, you know, just a young British naval lieutenant at that point. And there was a wonderful bit where, you know, later when he is... Um, engaged to Princess Elizabeth, 
some Buckingham Palace higher up honestly had the idea that they would invite Osla to Buckingham Palace with her, you know, husband slash fiance. I had it be fiance in my book to have tea with the princess, with the Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. And they thought this would be a good idea. And I was thinking, like, what do you think would happen? Like, you know, Oz, poor Osla is going to sit down with her future queen, who is, you know, who is marrying her ex-boyfriend and the future queen slash bride-to-be is going to like ask for tips on how to handle her husband because you guys used to date. I mean, who thought that was a good idea? And I just thought that was so hilarious. There was no way it wasn't going in the book, you know? Now my, what I learned that from was, you know, Osla's husband wrote a little memoir and he wrote that that had actually happened. Um, he doesn't say what was discussed at this tea or like what on earth did the ladies talk about? I, I sincerely doubt they were trading tips. <laughs> so, but would but you it, love to have been there? I mean, I want to hear it. You have been a fly on the wall, yes. right? You know, so it's like I had to put that in just because that was just so zany and crazy that, you know, any, first of all, that anyone would think that was a good idea. And that it, second of all, that it, it happened anyway. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. So I want to switch uh, gears a little bit for our last few questions and asking you about author, asking for some author tips and uh, tricks. So you're um, an incredible, amazing author. You've sold so many books, bestsellers on so many different lists. Um, what has been, I guess, the craziest or most exciting thing that's happened to you on the, along the way on this rise? Um, goodness. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's any good dream authors? I don't know. Lunch with someone you always wanted to meet? Anything like that? I have met more wonderful people than I can count. And, you know, it is wonderful that the best thing I think about this business, um, the best physical thing that is the best perk of this job is that I get so many books to read in advance of publication that is just hands down the best. Um, so that's wonderful. And then the other thing I think is discovering what a fantastically uh, supportive world this can be of how many wonderful women authors I have met who are in my life who support each other and who, you know, really could, you know, they cheerlead each other. I do the same for them. And I really can't conceive of life without them. They are just such a wonderful group to be a part of. And I do, I love, you know, these, the fact that these are ladies that I sometimes don't even see in person for years at a time, because we all live scattered all over the world. And yet, so maybe we might only meet every couple of years if we happen to go to the same conference, but, you know, we still keep track. Um, social media is great for that. And I think that's the best part of how my life has changed is how enriched it's been by the other authors that I've been lucky enough to meet. That's amazing. So what kind of advice do you have for new writers or people just starting out? Uh, my chief thing I always tell new writers is that you need to give yourself permission to be bad. And that is because I see so many people who are paralyzed by the voice in their head as they're trying to write something and which is saying, this is so bad, this is terrible, what are you doing? You can't ever show that to anyone. It's, it's just awful, just give up. And they do, and that's just such a great shame. And what you need to understand is that everybody's first draft is bad. My first drafts are bad. You know, I guarantee you, your favorite writer out there, their first drafts probably are terrible too. But I think it was Nora Roberts who said, I can fix a bad page. I can't fix a blank page. So what you need to do as a writer starting out is 
give yourself permission to be bad and to get those words out there, regardless of how awful they are and fix it later, because otherwise you are never going to get started. I mean, just keep in mind that you don't have to show those words to anyone until they're ready. So just get them out, just get them out. And then you can fix them later on and, you know, silence the voice in your head. I love that. So you're so prolific. I have to ask what's coming next. Have you already sold it? Have you already written it? (laughs) I have. Um, I actually am done with the draft of my next first draft of my next book, which is tentatively titled The Diamond Eye. And that is going to be about the woman who was history's most famous and lethal female sniper. And it was such a wonderful story I ran across. Uh, Lyudmila Pavlichenko was just a young Russian woman, a single mother, a grad student. She wanted to be a historian once she finished her dissertation. And all of that went to the wayside and was derailed when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. And she ended up on the front lines uh, as a sniper and earned such a reputation and such a tally that uh, she eventually had the nickname Lady Death, which I thought was just about the coolest historical tidbit ever. And if that wasn't interesting enough, there was also the fact that in 1942, she was sent on a goodwill tour of the United States and she became BFFs with none other than Eleanor Roosevelt. So if you can imagine Eleanor Roosevelt making friends with a Russian female sniper and the two of them just getting along like a house on fire. I read that and I was just like, this has to, I have to write this. I cannot not write this. So I was just absolutely uh, delighted to plunge into that story, which is now done. First draft, I'll be heading into edits when I'm done with the, um, all the virtual touring for the Rose Code and uh, the Diamond Eye should be coming out about this time next year. I cannot wait. Oh my God. Sign me up. <laughs> Amazing. Will do. Kate Quinn, thank you so much. I absolutely loved the Rose Code. I so appreciate all of your time and advice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so many, many times.